0: It's one thing to speak up. It's one thing to certainly be good at what you do, to have what, what I call that great resume. But at some point, people really give somebody credibility not based on their resume, but on their relationships. Why did I become
1: an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time.
2: Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the hard truth's playbook you never got.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Today, we're going to talk about one of the hardest of hard things, turnarounds restructuring change management. It's a specialty that requires making tough decisions, often under intense time and financial pressure, and navigating conflict and getting alignment between diverse stakeholders. So no one better to do that with than my guest today, a globally recognized turnaround expert, Martin Young. Marty is managing director at M3 Partners, a top Wall Street boutique restructuring advisory and investment firm. You name it, he has seen it, 25 years in this space, addressing more than 75 special investment situations. In addition to advising and leading engagements, he has held board roles and served in pretty much every executive role, to name a few, COO at Nora Analytics, and most recently as CEO at Buckle, an innovative insurance company serving the shared economy. For his contributions to the field, Marty has also been recognized as one of the top 100 restructuring professionals globally. Marty is a West Point graduate and served as an officer in the US Army Infantry, earned his MBA at NYU Stern School of Business and an MS in operations research from Georgia Tech. And not so typically, one of the topics that I wanna talk about today with him He holds multiple master's degrees and a a doctorate in theology from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in New York. Very excited today to talk to Marty about power and influence around two topics. One, leadership skills required to do successful restructuring, and two, the influence that his military and theological training has on his approach to work. Marty, welcome to 97% Effective.
0: Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me.
1: Let's start with your background. West Point, U.S. Army, MBA, MS in operations research, all of that very much makes sense in our stereotypical view of those who work in Wall Street and have a successful career there. But I'd like to start our conversation with the part of your background that jumps out, the theological degrees, as well as what I did not mention, ongoing work you do as a chaplain in the Army Reserve. How did your religious side emerge and how does that fit into
0: your life and work? So, you know, at a fairly young age, I had a lot of interest in serving in the military. And I was honored to get an appointment to West Point. And when you go to West Point, you are you are a soldier. You are 24-7, not just sort of the academic rigor, but you're also fully engaged in sort of the physical. And the military training, which is essentially nonstop. And inevitably, when you really sort of think about what you're trying to do as a soldier, is you're trying to basically defend, protect. But in order to do that, it often requires at least a threat and sometimes a use of force. And certainly the threat and use of force is really the threat of killing people. And when you think about that as human beings are moral creatures and you're talking about killing another moral creature, it it, it introduces a whole set of questions on, you know, the ethics of war, the spirituality of combat, the theology of conflict, and it, it really sort of forces those questions. and. I think everybody arrives to differing answers in terms of how they think about those things. But for me, you know, I, I, I had an encounter with, with Jesus Christ, you know, as a cadet, you know, through you know, reading the Bible and studying the Bible. And I was profoundly affected by that experience by by reading, you know, those words. And it really sort of changed a lot of my outlook on you should think about war and conflict what this all means particularly as you've seen the last 30 years we've not been a world at peace The, the war has almost been perpetual and feels like it's even increasing certainly during our lifetimes but but when you look at it really at its core the issues are are theological the issues are moral in terms of why you see these conflicts
1: and your work now you're a partner at m3 but you're also doing chaplain work. What, what does that involve or what does that look like?
0: So, you know, at M3, what we do is we focus on restructuring and turnaround. There's a very, very unique provision in the US Constitution. With going back to sort of my military experience, we're all brought in. And the first thing we all do is we swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. But within the Constitution, there is a provision that allows for the concept of bankruptcy, which when you look at government over the last 5,000 years of human history, the U.S. Constitution is pretty unique. It was really the only time government acknowledged that bankruptcy wasn't just a reality, but it was a, a tool to enable somebody to have a second chance Rather than you know, sending them away to debtor's prison, rather than you know, putting them through some sort of torturous punishment, rather than selling them and their family off to slavery, the U.S. Constitution introduces this concept of bankruptcy, that you could have a fresh start. And, and really, I think when you look at the core of turnaround restructuring, it's giving companies, and often sometimes individuals, but more often companies, sort of a fresh start to enter into the economy in, in a way where they create value, you know, for their owners, for employees, for vendors, for partners. Uh, they pay taxes, all those things.
1: And so you very much serve as a catalyst in that. Yes. Marty, this podcast is, is around power and influence, how, how individuals use it, harness it, particularly to get things done, to advance their careers. I'd love to start with how you personally define or think about power and influence?
0: So I think there's they're really sort of two different things. I think people think in terms of formal power, legal rights and capabilities they have, whether directly by law or through agreement or through a board resolution. And then there's informal power and you know influential power that often can basically also drive the decision makers have the real power to its actual outcomes. In our world, we think in terms of what I call tests. For example, the best interest test. Are we t- making decisions? Or are we taking actions that are in the best interest of all stakeholders? The idea of maximizing value, are we doing that? Or are we or Are we stopping things that destroy value? Are we acting in a way with our trade partners that is, is is not creating additional harm in the sense of um, extended payables that may already be in effect. So we, we're always sort of thinking about these issues and, and trying to create that level of transparency so as not to create, for one better word, additional harm to the various stakeholders involved in these often contentious restructuring actions.
1: That takes us right into The world of turnarounds and change management. And and I'll put it right out there. When people hear that, the words that come to mind is brutal cost-cutting, usually layoffs of people, and making some of these what they feel are inhumane decisions. Is that what your world of restructuring really looks like, or is that a Hollywood image of of what you do?
0: So I think that's one facet. And, And to go into that example, sometimes you have to look at what activities you know, a company is doing. Are those activities making money or not? Uh, are they creating value or destroying value? But you also have to remember the employees are also a set of stakeholders. And so there are laws, like for example, the Warren Act, that you have to sort of take into the calculus because even if you intend to stop a unprofitable activity, you still have to take into account that there are other stakeholders than just, quote, the company's shareholders, for example. So you got to do it in a way where you're also protecting the rights of the employees that are going to be laid off, for example, through the Warrant Act, and, and other things to comply with in order to, to do that. But I, I, I would probably comment, I think Hollywood oversimplifies everything. They're trying to make it super simple. But often these situations are actually quite complex.
1: You have done so many of these. You guys have also analyzed what constitutes a successful turnaround. Is there some key element that's defined success in, in the turnarounds you do?
0: So I think most of my colleagues in this profession will tell you that there are generally two things you look at. First of all, is the company a good company or a bad company? Meaning does a company deserve to exist? Because if not, it, it might not really be worth even trying to save it, right? But if the company deserves to exist, you sort of look at it through the lens of, is it a good company or a bad company? And and that ultimately has a focus on the income statement and the operations that produce the results on the income statement. So that's sort of what we call turnaround. If so there are things you can do to improve the income statement. Those tend to be turnaround type of activities. And then you have restructuring, which is really the the view of the balance sheet and the question of, is is this capital structure sustainable? Does the company need the capital uh, required to be successful? Or is the company miscapitalized and and despite being in a great market with a great management team and and, and, the right uh, platform, it just doesn't have the money to perform. So that tends to be more focused on the restructuring side. But often you can't do either action in a vacuum Because changes in the income statement certainly change how you think about the balance sheet. And constraints in the balance sheet often limit what you can do in the income statement. And so it's understanding the juxtaposition between, for want of a better word, what companies do, income statement, and how companies are then funded, balance sheet. You
1: break that down quite simply, and it sounds very rational. What does leadership and the people part of this equation play in that? success or or failure
0: so there are often multiple constituencies you certainly have your board members you have your executive team you have your key managers you have your mainline employees and that's usually everything quote internal to the company and then you have often externals that can be very influential and those could be sponsors you know private equity firms that actually own the company there could be large shareholder groups that have lots of influence on the company. There could be different types of creditors sort of sitting out there, whether banks or other types of secured lenders. Which these days there are lots of flavors. So there's banks, there're BDCs, there're CLOs, there're private lenders. Then there are unsecured lenders, which which could be bondholders, but. Generally, are all the trade predators, the, the vendors have, and partners the company needs in order just to operate its business in the normal course. And sometimes this could be quite large and quite concentrated and, and really affect outcomes. So managing all those constituencies in a way where we are trying to create and drive value is, is really the the art.
1: Talk about that art, because that goes right to the heart uh, of things here, that you are coming in as an advisor, and you've got all these stakeholders to manage. And And I, I want to go back to a conversation we actually had before, that you, you really paid in the world as lots of stakeholders, lots of egos, politics, infighting getting in the way. Can you say more about how, how you could go in and analyze or think about where you need to push, where you need to act?
0: So... So fundamentally, what you try to do, first of all, is try to understand what the core business really is. And, and sometimes I mean shedding things that are no longer the core business. But you try to figure out what is the core business, what are the necessary things in order to sustain the business? Because generally, the business itself is the key to a recovery. You know, whether for creditors, whether for equity, whether for employees, it, it's usually the key. So if, if you can get a for one of the better word a focus on what is the core business fundamentally and, and things that may not be the core business you might be able to go and sell off for example or wind down because it's not the core business but, but you're trying to triangulate through the core and then once you understand what the core is because of the the immense amount of law and case law with regarding bankruptcy if, if you sort of discern that that core, is not able to sustain the capital structure, we generally try to start thinking in terms of a bankruptcy paradigm. Even before we're ever in bankruptcy, we start thinking about um, how different creditors um, and other stakeholders could be treated in a Chapter 11 process. And we try to use that to inform you know, how, how this could basically drive potential restructuring actions both operationally and in terms of financially and regarding the balance sheet.
1: And then carrying through with those pieces, I imagine stakeholders have certain rights. There's those that can be overridden. And, and we are talking about power. Is it really yeah. kind of who holds leverage or power in decision-making that can block or support the recommendations that, that you guys are putting forth?
0: Yeah, sometimes, in, in certain cases, absolutely. And, and I wish there was a, a simple formula to it. That's why we like the idea of um, bankruptcy concepts. So if you're, for example, a senior lender, but there's more than ample cash flow, there's more than ample assets to make sure you're covered, even in a bankruptcy, um, then you would be what what in bankruptcy is called adequately protected. And Most senior lenders understand that, so they understand they may not have much influence because at the end of the day, they understand under most reasonable scenarios, you're going to get fully repaid. And then there are other creditors that, um, and stakeholders that just might be simply out of the money. And again, you would sort of think about those sort of differently through the lens of bankruptcy. But it's often those gray areas in between where you see the most contention. And, and, and typically, um, there's a lot of complexity in terms of how different people and institutions think about it based on how they got into the deal in the first place, based on how they're thinking about getting out of the deal um, versus how much they may like the company or they may just sort of see this as a very short term trading opportunity. So there are a lot of permutations, but, but often you know, there isn't really one size fits all. There, there are a lot of different types of creditors as well as agendas as creditors could have under a wide sort of range of circumstances.
2: You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview.
1: And it sounds a lot there of of very much understanding the interests and rights of the various stakeholders. And I would love to discuss this concept that came up in a previous conversation we had when we were talking about diagnosing organizations and part of your theological background came in here, we were half joking a little bit, but this idea of looking at everyone's self-interest, you brought up a a theological concept, total depravity. Yeah. To describe that, could you talk about that? It is an interesting lens to to look at organizations and people through, and I'm wondering what we could learn from that.
0: So again, much of what I do is based on law and regulation around bankruptcy. And a lot of that is based around law and regulation that comes from the U.S. Constitution. And so going back to why, why did we create bankruptcy in the U.S. Constitution? Because the founding fathers realized that lenders often used the power of debt to enslave people in scale. In fact, there are more slaves today than there were in 1859. And, and if you ask how is that possible, it's because of the power of debt. Because, you know, when a poor family owes somebody money they can't repay, they often have to sell the kids in slavery, right? The founding fathers also realized that if you just bankrupt somebody, so the original word bankrupt means you would basically destroy their business. You would break their bench, right? They could no longer do business. Well, that wasn't good either because you, you want somebody to be a contributing member of society. They just failed, right? Sam Walton failed the first time. But you want you want those entrepreneurs to come back and, and try again, right? So you don't you don't want to take somebody out of the game either. But sometimes there are competitors and financiers for reasons that, you know, unfortunately in human history want to take you out of the game because that's how you create monopolies, right? So you you go back to this idea of total depravity, the US Constitution Although it doesn't use that word, when you look at what it is, it assumes total depravity. That's why you don't want, for example, a president making all decisions. You want a president, a Supreme Court, and you want a Congress. Uh, and you want the Congress divided in two because you're afraid of populism. You're actually afraid of popular leaders and their ability to sway votes. So you don't want, you don't want a populist system, but you want to basically make it hard for a short-term populist leader to take control. You institute things like the electoral college for the same reason, right? You implement a whole bunch of laws that basically, or I, I should say constitutional rights that protect the rights of states so that if a state doesn't want to comply with the federal government, they don't have to. And so it, it's really interesting how there's sort of this implicit idea that the states should not trust the federal government. And if you look at the Constitution carefully, it's basically why all these rights are reserved to the states. And then even the Constitution authors realized that they were somewhat depraved. They would do things. So the Constitution had some... It had to change, but it had to change with very high bars. And the first change were the Bill of Rights, First Ten Amendments, which realized, you know what, you can't just not trust the the federal government and the states, individual state rights too. So if you sort of look at it very carefully, it assumes this idea of total depravity. And so what what rights are given are you know through the US Constitution are, are really the things that are restraining people from what would otherwise happen. And so, yes, people are totally depraved; They're always going to act in their self-interest. But things like bankruptcy and legal agreements put constraints on, on different stakeholders as you sort of look at these complex situations.
1: So, so it's very much thinking about people as th- that they will act in their own self-interest, not be looking out necessarily for the common good, and you need to have checks and balances or to assume that in, in most people. Is that a fair characterization of what that looks like?
0: Yeah, I I think that's what the Constitution says, and that's what the bankruptcy code is saying. But then it's sort of forcing a process upon people where you actually have to do things that are in best interests. You have to do things that are maximizing value, which have to all be stated because otherwise people wouldn't do it. So that's really what the bankruptcy process is designed to do.
1: This takes us a little bit back to, to your work as a chaplain. I'm curious because, you know, if you're a consultant, you're often brought in to have the answer. If you're an advisor or a coach, you're helping people come to that realization. And you've been on both sides of this sure. a- as an advisor, ad- advising the stakeholders, as well as being in the C-suite, right? Being on the kind of receiving end. Could you speak a little to how a chaplain looks at this or what element you may bring from that into how you advise others in their work?
0: In terms of being a chaplain, you you get a sense on how to relate to people in a very different way. I I kind of tell people that being a chaplain really grounds me to the average American. Because when you look at the makeup of the National Guard, for example, and generally the average soldier is the average American when you look at it. So you see a balance there in terms of just how people generally think about things. Because at the end of the day, you know, the reason I think capitalism has thrived here is not just because a handful of capitalists made a lot of money over the last hundred years, but it also enabled a lot of other people to get, you know, good paying jobs, pay mortgages, raise kids, all those sorts of things. And fundamentally, a good company has got to have good people and good leadership. But, but often when they're in these pockets, you're trying to figure out, does the company even deserve to exist? Fundamentally, as you're going through these sort of complex uh, mathematical calculations and legal permutations, you, you've got to understand how you know, the average person of the company is going to process all this. Should they be looking to leave and get another job? Should they be Looking to, for a better word, just focus their efforts elsewhere, even if they may maybe showing up. So those are all the things you really got to think about, and and it's not just messaging, but it's really kind of trying to partner with management and the board, so that people are are incented, they're aligned, and they're you know showing up at work every day and, and they're moving the company in the right direction. That's that's not easy.
1: I like that concept you said about grounding that comes with your work as a chaplain. Are there certain things you will do to get grounding each time you go into a conversation?
0: I think when I'm going into what I know is going to be a very hard and contentious meeting, I do try to say a prayer before then to just remain calm, remain self-controlled, listen, try to understand people's perspectives. So, yeah.
1: This piece, to, let's flip it to the other side, because as, as I mentioned in the introduction, multiple C-suite roles and most recently as CEO at Buckle. And one of the things in the work that I look at is power can also corrupt, right? As you, as you gain more of it, you lose perspective. It has a blinding side where you ignore things. So here also is this element of grounding when you were in the C-suite, a lot of times you're getting misinformation fed to you all around. How did you? <laughs> When you were in those roles, get perspective, sort out what was embellished versus fact.
0: So I think it's always tricky. You know, I would simply say whether you're a commander uh, in the military or the CEO of a business, it, it tends to be a very lonely uh, role because there are very few people for you to really talk to, engage with, and have honest discussions. And certainly. You know, whether it's a board member or a fellow executive at a company, there, there's always going to be, for want of a better word, some, some sort of fog over what kind of really honest discussion we can really have at the end of the day. When you sort of think about it, nobody really wants to piss off the CEO, who's usually their boss or their boss's boss. And, and sometimes the CEO is the last one to know there's a problem. But hopefully you're trying to do things that create a culture where as you as problems are being understood and detected, they are they are addressed at the lowest levels, but the learnings are are, are transmitted through the organization. Because usually most of the problems tend to be not at the front line, they tend to be systemic problems that yeah. are that are engaging processes across different silos in the business. And simple examples are. Marketing thought something would be a good idea, and the sales folks were misincented based on that marketing idea, and the the accountant started logging sales, and the supply chain had problems getting it, and suddenly you've sold a lot of things where you didn't make any money. It wasn't as simple as, let's sell product ABC, and you realize there's systemic problems in the organization that led the organization to do that.
1: The ideal is an organization where you can speak up and you won't get your head chopped off for for bringing that news, particularly to those at the top. And very curious here, because again, the stereotypical vision of the military, very top-down, hierarchical, and being wary of questioning the chain of command. What does the military, is there any advice there for how you share bad news that would be good for the company but might be terrible for you if it's taken badly?
0: I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I guess whenever you have bad news, you've got to have some level of discernment in how you say it. I I think often people have bad news and they try to put the blame on somebody very quickly. But typically, things are a little bit more complicated than that. So going back to my example, like, who was really at fault? Was it the marketing guy that, you know, was selling an unprofitable product, the salespeople taking advantage of commissions that were too high? Was it the um, supply chain guys that just didn't, um, didn't communicate fast enough that it would be a lot more expensive to source something than they thought it would be? You get my point. The blame is typically not as straightforward as people understand.
1: Martin, you hold the doctorate of ministry and title here is Workplace Theology, Ethics, and Leadership. We don't need to go into how workplace trust and and ethics across the board uh, globally, but particularly in the U.S., is at an all-time low, at least trust in in a lot of our institutions. You have referenced how you guys very much look at the U.S. Constitution. Anything you want to add here in terms of that training and theology around ethics?
0: Yeah, I, I think people, whether it's implicit or explicit, but generally it's implicit, is people have a way of thinking about their worldview that usually starts with some view of theology. And, and to be clear, atheists have a theology. It's sort of whatever you believe or don't believe about the internal nature of, of, of things, right? Whether God or something you, you might equate or simply you just reject the idea altogether. But, but generally there's something there that gives people an anchor, on how to basically put meaning into the way they view their lives, and I think then after that is based on that that idea, then you have concepts like like ethics, and all the ethical systems, which are generally logical systems. Ethics are really logic, but the the logic is always sort of built on top of the theology in terms of how people think about things. Once you get beyond um, the idea of ethics, now you can talk about leadership. And leadership is really, the, in my view, it's identifying a problem with a moral center that people can get behind and want to solve. And I think good companies, they're solving a problem. Or, and it can be a mundane problem, like we just need to sell the best soap there is in order to kill bacteria and reduce people getting sick. But, but you see how that has sort of a moral center to it at the end of the day. It makes work kind of worthwhile. Mm. But that idea, that progression, theology, then ethics, then leadership, I think is a very important progression. And unfortunately, I think it's unfortunately somewhat lost in, in, in our modern age. You know, The trivium was really designed around this idea, right? So you would start off in grammar school, just being able to, to basically read and understand paragraphs and sentences and essays. But that would generally be sort of the ground truth. And then you would go into the logic, uh, which is really kind of that idea of ethics, right? These are ethical systems or logical systems. Hmm. And then leadership is a world of rhetoric. If you have all that other stuff in a sound place, then you can start using rhetoric to really create the emotion. Um, but the emotion is sort of grounded by the the logic and the facts behind it. And unfortunately, I think a lot of what we have today, people are really focused on, you know, for a better word, the rhetoric with or without leaders, but everything else that should have been built before it just simply is non-existent. The people I think are searching, like they all want that. And they're, they're trying to, for a better word, discern what truth is going to theology and how to live their lives in a way ethically and morally they can live with themselves. I think everybody struggles with these basic issues.
1: You've brought up here in that last answer, multiple streams that are for future conversations. And I want to end with a, with a personal question, Marty, this conversation, you are very grounded. You have deeply thought about what you do and how you do it. Almost a very quiet, reserved Approach, and I, I want to bring this up because so many of the executives and rising executives I work with, you tend to get penalized for for being quiet or introverted, not speaking up. I think this disproportionately affects introverts, technical people, Asian backgrounds. We are looking at you right now at the top, and you know, and as you kind of moved up your career, unless your personality has changed, you have always been very thoughtful. Any perspectives on this, of particularly in environments that you need to be speaking up more loudly? how people thread that in a thoughtful way?
0: So I think I think there's a paradigm that's certainly misunderstood in, I think, a lot of what I'd call younger people as well as people halfway in their career. And, and that is really this issue of relationship. And it's one thing to speak up. It's one thing to certainly be good at what you do, to have what, what I call that great resume. But at some point people really give somebody credibility not based on their resume but on their relationships and I would simply say is if you want to speak up that's great but hopefully you have the kind of relationships with the people you work with that you already had the conversations with the people in the room to know that when you say something you're simply saying the things that people already have on their mind and and they're concerned about and if you don't have those kinds of relationships, you will find you're generally pretty ineffective. Hmm.
1: Tremendous truth there. Marty Young, Managing Director at M3 Partners. Very much appreciate your time, Marty, for
0: joining me today.
1: How do people best reach you or see you and the work you and your company do?
0: I believe just Google M3 Partners or restructuring M3. People will find this pretty quick.
1: Thank you so much, Marty. All right. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take care.
2: Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted on his website www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.c h a n g w e n d e r o t h.com